because it was in that moment while we were under the stairs that I spotted a book in a packing case. It was a book I'd read decades earlier by uh, Mark Warrington mm -hmm. called 500 Mile Walkies. Yes. And it was the story of a young man that walked around the southwest coast path with his dog. And just then, just in that awful moment of knowing that when we stepped out of that door, we were going to become homeless and that there was nothing for us and no help available. Just in that moment, the idea of just filling a rucksack and going for a walk, it just seemed like the most obvious thing to do. Thanks for listening to the Trouble Club podcast. If you'd like to know more about our events or become a member, do check us out on our website, www.thetroubleclub.com. You can also find this linked in the description below this podcast. Raina, thank you so much for joining us. Writer, salt path, walker, best-selling author. What do you call yourselves these days? Um, I don't know. I still find it quite hard to put a label on, on myself, really. And people say, you're, oh, you're an author. And I think, am I? Am I? <laughs> can I actually say that now? <laughs> I think you can definitely say that, yes. People call themselves an author for a lot less. Mm, okay, maybe, maybe I should allow myself to do that. <laughs> Absolutely, intrepid uh, walker and adventurer as well. Before, so just to kind of start with, for those people mad enough not to have read The Soul Path, can you tell us, what it is, what it's about, and the adventure that it was and the events that led up to that? Well, probably if I start at the very beginning, that would, that would make the, the most sense. And, and go back a little bit further than the start of the Salt Path. That would be um, Yeah, which was probably when I was about 18, and I was <laughs> sitting in the college canteen, and it was, it was absolutely crammed room. But there was this parting between the heads in the room, and on the other side, I saw this young man in a white shirt and these dazzling blue eyes and it wasn't that that made me look it was because he was dipping a mars bar in a cup of tea oh. and just in that moment i thought obviously that's the one for me <laughs> that <laughs> so might be yeah. <laughs> who'd have thought but turned out to be so because um, he's still here yes. <laughs> and actually that was one of the questions that i did have quite a lot from people and it was not too personal to ask people are desperate to know how moth's doing yeah, how's he doing? He's he's not as well as he was when we finished walking, um, but he's still in much better health than the doctors and the consultants say he should be. So, so we just stay as active as we can out out in a natural environment, and uh, and for now, that's keeping him on some sort of plateau. Perfect. Well, that's really great to hear. So, yeah. what kind of started the salt path journey, the events that you know really got yes. us going? So. We'd met when we were really young, but we'd had this dream that we would find a, a ruin in the hills and, and somewhere that we could restore and, and live life our way, the way we chose, out in the natural world as much as we possibly could. And I think I was about 30 when we found that place. And it really was a ruin. It was holes in the walls and the roof was caving in. And, but we moved in with our two babies and... Um, and that was it. it was, we spent the next 20 years of our lives restoring that place and and we converted the outbuildings so people could come and stay and that became our, our business and our main source of income. But sadly, in the background, we'd had this financial dispute with a lifetime friend um, that ended in a court case yeah. that saw us being served with an eviction notice from our home, from that, that dream idyll that we created for ourselves. And we thought that was the worst thing that could possibly happen to us. 
and we were given seven days to leave the house. So seven days to pack 20 years of life into boxes. And um, but it was during that week that Moth had a routine hospital appointment yeah. where we thought that we would be told how they were going to fix some ligament damage in his shoulder that we thought had occurred when he'd fallen off the barn roof. Mm -hmm. um, but when we had that appointment, it was anything but normal. And um, he was diagnosed with corticobasal degeneration, a neurodegenerative disease that has no treatment and no cure. And the consultant um, said, really, all I can say is, don't get too tired and be careful on the stairs. So we went back to the house with only a few days to go um, before we had to leave, carried on packing. And it came to the last moments in the house. The bailiffs were knocking at the door and we, we were hiding under the stairs. And not because we thought a miracle was going to happen and we wouldn't have to leave, but I think because we just weren't ready to take that final step over the threshold, yeah. just knowing we'd never ever be able to go back, back to that house, back to that old life, back to that world we created for ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, but it was in that moment while we were under the stairs that I spotted a book in a packing case. It was a book I'd read decades earlier by uh, Mark Warrington mm -hmm. called 500 Mile Walkies. Yes. And it was the story of a young man that walked around the southwest coast path with his dog. And just then, just in that awful moment of knowing that when we stepped out of that door, we were going to become homeless. And that there was nothing for us and no help available. Just in that moment, the idea of just filling the rucksack and going for a walk, it just seemed like the most obvious thing to do. And so, uh, yeah, that's what became the book, The Salt Path, was the story of that walk. And do you think the map that you kind of saw, the book that you saw, do you think that you were just kind of reaching out for something, anything to tell you what to do or where to go or give you some oh. kind of purpose? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because we weren't just losing the house. We were losing the whole framework of our lives. That, that framework that we all build of, of life, that we spend years creating the house, the job, the, the financial structure, the good things that drive you forwards every day and that was all gone gone in a moment and then there was just nothing but a void a void that we had to find a way to make ourselves just go go into the next day to get up out of bed in the morning if we'd had a bed <laughs> but, yeah um yeah so so i think just the idea of following a line on the map seemed to give us a sense of purpose, a sense of reason. And at that moment, we just seized onto that idea of, of just literally following that line on that map. And instead of going for, you know, a, you know, a pretty easy, maybe 10 mile, you know, yomp, you instead decided to do, to, well, at least attempt to do a very specific route. Can you talk about that? Well, yes, the Southwest Coast Path, it's a 630 mile, uh, trail that follows the coastline through uh, through Somerset, starts in Winehead in Somerset and goes through North Devon, the whole coast of uh, Cornwall, South Devon and ends in Poole in Dorset. And it has an ascent that's equivalent to climbing Everest nearly four times. 
seems impossible just on a coastal walk until you actually start walking <laughs> and and yeah you within days you realize yep you are going to climb Everest and some um yeah it's not an easy path at all um and it goes across headlands and beaches mm -hmm. and through woodlands and and into coves and strange hidden places and it's it's the most remarkable journey if, if you can find the time to follow it it's an incredible journey through through changing and varied landscape and people actually you think of the southwest as all being one but there, there are strangely differing people within that within that small area and you met some incredible people while you were walking 630 miles uh, around the southwest coast path uh, can you talk about kind of some of your favorites some of your favorite individuals from the path yeah well we did we met so many people so many people as we were walking and um all the, with very different attitudes towards towards us really mm -hmm. um i think possibly the strangest encounter we had was in, in very early days we, we walked into uh, a woodland and uh, as we were going down the path we could see someone ahead of us appeared to be practicing yoga so we waited and we waited on, on the path because we didn't want to disturb him because he seemed so engrossed in what he was doing but eventually we just we just snuck by and then we followed the path down and it came to this little church and we just sat by the church for a while then this man came down down the path and started to talk to us and we thought he's going to tell us we shouldn't be sitting here you know or something but he didn't he 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 went up to Martha and he put his hand on his shoulder and he said you will walk a long way and you'll see many things and many places and we thought okay this is true <laughs> and then he said and you will walk with a tortoise yes the tortoise okay well we put the rucksacks on pretty quickly at that mm. point we just carried on but I'll bring you back to the tortoise later. <laughs> but then as we walked on, I think some of the, the most uh, unexpected encounters came from people when they realised that we were homeless. Yeah. And, um, and we quite readily told people that we were homeless without, um, without any, any concern for saying that to start with, because I'd never encountered homelessness really. It hadn't been part of my rural life. Yes. So the idea of prejudice and the preconceptions that surround that hadn't really occurred to us. Mm -hmm. um, so when we, we met with people who, who said, how come you've got so much time to walk so far? And we actually just responded by saying, well, it's because we've lost our house. We've nowhere else to go. So we're just walking. It came as a real shock to find that they actually physically recoiled or people drew their dogs in on the retractable leads. Um, so that, that did mean that later on we sort of like changed that story a bit and we, we started to say, well, actually, we're just having a midlife moment and mm -hmm. going where the wind blows. And, and you said it was, they would always be yeah. okay if you said that you'd sold the house, but yeah. saying that you had lost the house and that you, you know, were just homeless. That would change the way that people perceived you. Do you Absolutely. hope that the book changes the way that people look at homeless people? Um, I really hope so, yeah. Yeah, I really hope that it's actually made even just a few people regard homeless people not as a statistic and not just as a problem in a shop doorway, but actually as individuals who've all come to that, that point in their life. Mm 
through their own story and their own journey. So if it's had that effect on just a handful of people, then that's that's worthwhile. I think. And that's a brilliant. There's lots of different brilliant moments where you enter different kind of towns along the coast path, and you you kind of find out how many homeless people were supposed to be there, and then you realise you must have met all of them in one night because there were a lot more than you know the statistics show. And being homeless wasn't you know being homeless on the path wasn't just about having nowhere to stay. There was also issues with how much you could eat and how much food you had available. Well, absolutely. We had uh, very little money. It started out as um, about £48 a week, but very quickly reduced down to 30 which um, in the peak of the summer on the southwest coast path right there in the, in the tourist hotspots doesn't go very far, not no. between two of you anyway. One or two companies, um, really. Yeah, so by the time you've maybe had to buy some more gas for the stove or or had to pay for a ferry crossing rather than walk 30 miles inland, mm -hmm. um, that £30 just doesn't last very long at all. And we found quite often that we would be, um, we would be just living on packs of dried noodles for a week because that's just all we could afford. Or it reduced down at one point to a bag of fudge that lasted for three days. Gosh. I think our very, our very worst moment was when we um, we woke up one morning to remember that we actually had no food at all. A moth found this one hairy wine gum in his pocket and we cut that in half for breakfast and then just Goodness. carried on walking. That that possibly was one of the worst One of the moments. worst days. Because I think everyone thinks that, you know, that one of the best things about going on such a long walk is being able to sit down and eat a massive meal and not feel guilty about it. But having to do so much physical work and not having anything to eat it just sounded like it was absolute agony. But the physicalness of it and the limited diet and the amount of physicality that it took to carry everything you owned across 630 miles had quite an amazing effect. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it did actually. I mean, as, as I said, when Moth had his diagnosis, um, they were told that actually um, his health, he, he, he might have two years and, and most of that time would be in a, during a serious decline in his yeah. health. Um, so we set off on that walk really in, in the hope of just, just seizing those last few days weeks months whatever we had of moderately good health um and just spending some time just trying to come to terms with what had happened mm -hmm. but as we walked i think i think we'd maybe we'd been walking about 200 miles when we started to realize that actually he was walking just a little bit more easily um he, he was just a little bit more coherent in his thinking and it, it it was sort of the end of really a perfect summer's day. And we came down to this, this cove, Porthelas Cove, and the sea was flat calm, it was like syrup. And we, we pitched a tent way above the high tide line and went and swam in the bay and there were dolphins. Oh, I remember this bit, yeah. Yeah, dolphins in the bay and it was absolutely perfect. Had we not been homeless and dieting, it would have been perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then it, about three o'clock in the morning, we realised that we weren't above the high tide line mm -hmm. because I opened the tent flaps and uh, the, the tide was still coming in and it was about a metre away from the tent. Yes. So we had to jump out, put the rucksacks on and grab the tent whole, still fully erected mm -hmm. and run up the beach with it held above our heads. And as, as we got to the top of the beach and dropped the tent down at the foot of the cliffs, we realised that Moth had just run up the beach with a tent above his head, 
when only a few weeks earlier, he could barely put his coat on without help. And just then in that moment, we realized that that path was, was doing something absolutely remarkable for him. And it felt like a, it felt like a miracle. It, oh my it, goodness. Yeah. I mean, when, it, when you read through it, it's, it's so emotional because you're just watching, kind of, you kind of see him becoming stronger and stronger with every single yeah. step that he takes. But at the beginning, there were a massive amount of difficult moments when, you know, Paddy Dillon tells you that you've got, you know, just a very ca casual kind of stroll upwards. And then suddenly it's like you're staring at a massive cliff mountain. Um, what was it like in those really, really hard moments? What, and what were the, some of the lowest moments? Of, we've had this from like four different people in a variety of ways. So what were the lowest yeah. moments of the trip? Yeah, I think, I think in those early days, it was really, really hard. Um, not just because we had no money and we were wild camping because we couldn't afford campsites. Mm -hmm not just coming to terms with the fact that that tent was the only home we had or or still carrying all the anxiety and the anger and the bitterness about what has happened in the court yeah. case but because moth was struggling to just put his rucksack on or to get in and out of the tent so those early days were really really difficult as well as coming to terms with the fact that we were homeless mm -hmm. and what that meant uh, what that meant about us in society and how that had changed how we were regarded by other people so all of those things in the beginning so hard and the fact that Paddy Dillon says that that path you know drifts gently uphill when actually it's more like a sheer cliff face so lots and lots of problems to start with that we were facing and then and then we hit probably one of our worst points which was um when moth ran out of the medications he was taking he, he'd been prescribed this medication for nerve pain um and if you were to stop taking it you were supposed to step it down gradually yes. over a period of time but we didn't realize that in the in the rush to to do everything that we were doing we'd left his his forthcoming months worth of medication behind and we hadn't got any more with us well, that guidebook, that little guidebook is great, but the OS map that runs right through it only shows you half a mile inland. So you've no idea really where you are or how close to a, a chemist you may be or how close to civilization you yeah. really are. Um, so we hit this point in really one of the hottest moments of that walk. It was sort of 38 degrees on an exposed headland with no shelter and uh, we found ourselves on the beach for for about three days while moth really went through what was actually withdrawal from a substance that in america i think is is a class five drug or something mm -hmm. but it's not in this country and it was a really difficult few days while he went through that mm -hmm. and we really didn't know whether we would be able to go on mm -hmm. whether we'd have the strength to go back whether we could go forwards what so we just we just sat it out on the on the beach um but then as as that time passed and he started to feel the symptoms passing we we realized that actually there wasn't really anything to go back for and the only thing that was taking us forwards was that path mm -hmm. and was and was the next step that we might take along that path Mm -hmm. And we just knew that we had to keep going at that point. Absolutely. 
Oh my goodness. Um, so another a couple of questions that we've had kind of in similar way, what was the best bit of the salt path? Of the coast path, like we said this beforehand that I think they should just rename it because I just keep referring to it as the salt path, of the coast path. Oh, so many incredible moments on that path. Some of the people we met that were so, so kind and so generous. People often who are very little or nearly nothing to share, but we shared everything that they had. Or other moments when we, we met, you know, just remarkably funny people or, uh, or evenings that we spent with surfers, um, listening to their philosophies on life and, and really very, very unexpected moments. Or actually being mistaken, must be mistaken for Simon Armitage okay. when we didn't even know who Simon Armitage was. And lots of incredible moments, but... Um, possibly one of the most memorable really was when we turned Land's End. Mm -hmm. We reached Land's End. Um, sort of, well, sort of in our heads, we'd been telling ourselves we were going to Land's End mm -hmm. because the idea of walking the whole path just seemed quite ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So we reached Land's End, not knowing if we were going to go on or go back or, or what we were going to do. And it was a really Cornish day of sort of horizontal rain and yes. gales and just horrendous weather. I think I've seen a selfie. It was really quite, it looked pretty yeah, It was quite windy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we got there. I don't know if you've ever been to the Land's End building, but it's, it's quite a concrete monstrosity. Mm -hmm. And it's usually full of people. Yeah. But we got there and there was not a soul there. Even the, the pirate's cabin experience was empty. You know, there was just nobody there. You were looking for trouble and you found it. We are a special society, a talks and dinners club where you can hear some of the finest voices talking on everything from politics to fiction. They all happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode. And... Um... We, we were just leaving the archway of this building that you sort of have to walk through mm -hmm. and uh, a bus pulled up and it was uh, it was the Cornish coaster um, open top bus and the doors opened and and just in that split second we were thinking we could get on it and we could go back and sofa surf and try and wait for council accommodation but as the doors opened, a waterfall of water came out of the bus that had come down off the, off the open top and was pouring down the stairs and out the door. And we thought, do you know, we're going to keep walking. We're just going to keep going. And we carried on then beyond, beyond that Land's End building out onto what to me feels like a real Land's End. And it's the blocky granite cliffs beyond there. And we just stood there as, as the rain stopped and this wind was still lashing in, driving these incredible weather systems off the Atlantic. And it was just us, just us alone at the edge of the land and the start of the sea, where there was just nothing between us and Canada. Yeah. And, and we put that tent up and got in and there was just two sheets of wet nylon and between us and whatever was coming at us across that sea. And 
we were looking for food in the bags and we got a Mars bar and about £2.50 left between us. And it should have been absolutely one of the lowest points of our life, really. But it was, it was the opposite. It, it was a really uplifting moment because I think as we were there in that incredible driving wind, we realised that actually that path had given us something we thought we'd never feel again. And it was just a sense of the possibility and the hope of life. Mm-hmm. And, and we sort of seized that. We seized that feeling and just carried on walking. And you just kind of put one foot in front of the other and, and kept going. Because you'd said to lots of people up to that point, when they asked how far you were going, you'd say, maybe Land's End, but we'll see how yeah. it turns out. You never had the guts to say we're going all the way to Paul. No. Um, but then at that moment, you must have realised, well, we've done we've done the hard bit now and now and that must have been such a an amazing feeling to know that also in terms of what was going on in your life the hard bit was kind of over as well it was it was a sense that you know like I say all that anxiety that we'd felt at the start of that walk we realized that actually we'd left it behind it felt as if we'd left it on the headlands as we'd walked across them and and we we weren't carrying it anymore there was still there was still some feeling of loss of our home of our life that came before but it was as if we weren't feeling it in in that raw visceral way that we were at the start and just walking just the process of walking was allowing us to let it go almost like you swapped the kind of mental baggage for real physical baggage and 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 the transition just kind of happened while you were walking we have a lot of comments from people so uh we'll go through some of the questions uh the loss of your home and income stripped you very swiftly of the trappings of hitherto normal middle-class life and during the journey you reflected a lot on the nature of homelessness and people who live on the edge of society literally and metaphorically has that experience and those reflections changed your life and view of the world permanently or have those feelings now receded I probably need to read your new book to find out. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, you really need to read The Wild Silence because uh, I think, you know, all the answers are there. Um, but I think, I think it changed me. It changed my attitude towards life, towards other people mm-hmm. and towards material possessions. I think in ways that I would never have expected, but I certainly can't go back from. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could ever be the same person that I was mm-hmm. when we started that walk because because it changed me so fundamentally yeah. and that I think certainly I certainly won't ever feel the same way about material things mm-hmm. um, because I, they're not the thing that sustains you what sustains you is your relationships I think with for for me my relationships with with my family and with the natural world that's that's allowed that walk allowed me to see that that was at the core of who I was mm-hmm. and I, I couldn't lose that Absolutely. even if I lost every other material thing that I had and yeah. that's kind of where you pick up at the beginning of the wild silence which is really just from when you kind of step off uh, the salt path you know you start by saying that you have to you have to sleep out by the path because you can't sleep under a roof anymore i suppose you must have thought that everything would just go back to normal you'd feel you know 10 times better as soon as there's a roof over your head but that wasn't the case what was it you know why did you feel the need to go back to the path and how did the whole process change the way you feel about home and what a home is 
Yes, it, it came as a real surprise to me. I thought when we, we were offered accommodation, that I would be able to just walk back into a, a into a house under a roof and resume life, and it would be it would be straightforward. But it was anything but. I found I was agitated. I couldn't sleep, and like you say, I was walking out onto the coast path even in the middle of the night and just spending time out in the gorse bushes because there was just some like I felt as if I was disconnected from myself, disconnected from something. And I couldn't quite pin down what it was. It became so ridiculous that I put the tent up in the bedroom <laughs> and slept in that for weeks. The smell of it, you needed the smell to... Yeah, but, but that, that was it. In that tent, there was that smell of the salt air and the, the sea. And I would fill the sleeping bags and they were still full of the sand of the walk. And there was something in that. There was a reconnection in that, I think. But as well, I think I realised that when I moved into that accommodation it was in a village I mean it was the perfect idyllic Cornish village but I'd never lived in a village before never lived in the town it was the first time I'd lived in a place where when I walked out of the door I had to engage with people immediately and I didn't have everyday access to the natural world and I think when I started to realize that the root of the problem was there Mm -hmm. in that connection to nature and how fundamentally I'd come to need it I think then I started to work my way through the, the issues that I was having in the in the village absolutely um and of course and, and you know for people who I don't quite want to ruin you know the salt path and the ending and all that kind of stuff but Moth does start going back to university uh, to study but he kind of well there's a very specific reason why he decided to turn the salt path into a book and you very much you explore that in the wild silence he tells a little bit about why you decided to write this down because it seems obvious to us that this was an incredible experience that must be put in print but it didn't seem that way to you at the time no that wasn't what I was writing it for at all um yeah um we, we went to live in the in the um the flat in the village and uh, moth started a university degree um which Later, he, he did graduate and, and uh, he, did, he did finish his degree. Um, but he, he was out every day um, studying for his degree. Yeah. And, um, but at the same time, he was becoming a lot more sedentary than he'd been when we were walking, obviously. And it was having a very detrimental effect on his health. Mm -hmm. he, his health was going downhill very quickly. And he was starting to forget things, starting to forget our walk. And that felt, that felt impossible for me, that he would forget that walk because it had been such a powerful, important thing in our lives. I didn't want him to let that go, even if it wasn't, you know, up to him whether he let it go or not. <laughs> so it was such a strange scenario because he was learning at uni on one hand, but starting to forget so many things on the other. And I, I was just really trying to to find a way to hold on to those memories for him mm -hmm. so I, I got Paddy Dillon's guidebook back out and his guidebook that had taken us round that path and it had his incredible descriptions of the path and the OS map that ran right through it but more than that, there were these penciled notes in the margins that Moth had written every night when he'd been, we'd been sitting in a tent. He'd just written notes about where we camped or the people we'd met or, you know, whatever. 
So I started to write those notes up, just thinking I would save them yeah. before they faded away. Mm -hmm. But um, but very quickly it turned into a narrative. And um, months later, I'd, I'd written a book and I printed it off the home, the home printer and it started out black and ended up pink by the time yeah. it got to the end. And I tied it up with string and I gave it to Moth for his birthday. Because what I tried to do was to create something that would put him on the path next to me. When he read it, he would feel as if he was there on the path with me. And that's all it was. It was, it was the story of our walk for him, for him to remember. But then my daughter read it before he did and said, do you know, mom, you really ought to do something with it. I didn't know what she meant. I was like, what do you mean, get a binder, put it in a yeah. binder? <laughs> put it in the door, what do you, what do you mean? Yeah, what, what do you mean? Um, but anyway, from, from there it went on and it was eventually published. Yeah, Absolutely, and we've had a really lovely comment which kind of, you, you slightly answered the question, but it's, hi Raina, firstly thank you for this. I'm super happy to be here and so excited for your second book as I absolutely love The Salt Path. I grew up in Cornwall so it was wonderful to read and recognise the places and inspired me to spend a few days walking along the Cornish part of the path last summer and I can't wait to do more. I have a super basic question, so apologies for my naivety, but one of the things you mentioned is packing as light as possible. With such wonderful observations throughout the book, I have also wondered whether you made notes and were writing as you went along. Did you have in mind to write about this at the time? It was all, or was it all from memory? And my second question, if that's okay, what are your thoughts on the salt path being adapted for film or television? So you've kind of answered that uh, slightly, but you, you are unbelievably descriptive and you make everyone feel like you're there. So that's, you know, and you're writing it so that Moth will remember every element and sense and, and you know, all the senses are alive. But how did you, how did you remember all of those unbelievably small details? Like I say, it, it was opening that guidebook mm -hmm. and um, there was so much in that guidebook, the absolute description of the path. And when I could place myself on that OS map mm -hmm. and then put, put that together with Moth's, Moth's penciled notes and almost as if, it was almost as if I could start to smell the, smell the path again. Mm -hmm. I could feel the path. And, and then I almost put myself mentally back onto the path. And I was, as I was following that OS map, it was like, oh, I went around that corner and I, we met the Australians. And then, oh, and that was where the goat was. And, and then as soon as I could feel those memories again, then I could feel the path. And, and it was as if I was back on it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how I wrote it. it. And yeah. uh, I have heard that there's rumours that there's going to be a film. Can you confirm or deny that? Well, it's been optioned for a film. Okay. Yeah. So um, it's in the process of the film being developed now. So um, the screenplay is being written and uh, fingers crossed it's supposed to it's supposed to be starting filming in about this time next year mm -hmm. early september maybe next year assuming the world hasn't fallen apart by then yeah presumably hopefully it won't have to be filmed everyone wearing masks or yes. whatever um and, and hopefully filmed on on the coast path so oh, good. and who yeah. would you have play you and moth if you could choose <laughs> <laughs> I've had so many ideas about this. Um, I, I did think um, Olivia Coleman because oh, yeah. she would get the humour, you know, the, the irony in the book. But then she went to win an Oscar, so I don't know. Uh -oh. if she Ruins me. an actress, that doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but Moth, he's so tricky. There's just uh, so tricky. There's just nobody like him. But I sort of quite like the idea of Greg Wise. I think. I think okay. he might. He might be that sort of right character. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, um, 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, fingers crossed, because that would just be amazing if it was turned into film, especially with all the incredible views and the, and the whole sight and sound of the whole thing. Um, but in terms of when you finish the path, you get given this whole big project to do. You're, you almost embark on another seemingly impossible you know, um, endeavor. Can you talk about that and what it was like having, being able to work land again? Yes, it was very, very unexpected. Um, shortly after the Salt Path was published in hardback, um, the publishers uh, asked me if I would, I would sign up to social media to try to promote the book. Well, I, I had no idea what social media was about, never touched it in my life, had no idea. So signed up to Twitter, really not knowing what I was doing at all. So when someone contacted me and said, can I have your phone number? I just handed it over. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, this, this man- You're not supposed to do that, I don't think, yeah. Oh, I've covered that now. <laughs> <laughs> this, this man contacted me and um, he, he had read The Salt Path and he, con he connected with the story on such a fundamental, basic, personal level that he felt he had to get in touch. And, um, and he, he said that actually he had a historic cider farm that was just a few miles away from where we were living. And it was a place that had been neglected and the land had been agriculturally overused. But he had this dream that he would be able to bring the biodiversity back, bring the, the wildlife back. And he'd read that book and he thought that we were the ones to help make that possible. And would we would we come and live at the farm and, and help him achieve his dream? An absolute gift, as it seems. Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, it took us yeah, a long no, time. Yeah, it took us a long time to decide that actually we would do it because we thought, how can we ever trust anybody again? You know, we trusted someone, and, and look where that got us. It lost our mm -hmm. house. And and then all the interactions we'd had with people on the, on the path, we. We'd lost our sense of trust of human nature, I think. Mm -hmm. But eventually we realised that this was such a magical place. We had to come. So we just took a huge leap of faith and, and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also another massive walk as well in the wild silence because 630 miles is not enough for anybody. Um, so can you talk a bit about that? Why you decided on the location? Why you decided to go where you did? Well, yes. Um, Moth's health had really deteriorated while he was doing his degree. But when we came back to the farm, just being out, working on the land, just, or, or even just out in the natural environment on a day-to-day -day basis, his health had started to improve to the point where it was sort of on a plateau, really. Mm -hmm. But he had this feeling that maybe if we did another, another walk, a big walk, maybe not as big as the coast path, obviously, but another big walk that maybe it might give his health a boost again. Thanks so much for listening to the Trouble Club podcast. While podcasts are great, we prefer the live experience. We host events in London four to six times per month and all of our speakers just happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode. So uh, we were thinking of where we would go and uh, we got this book called Epic Hikes mm -hmm. and in that was this um, beautiful picture of this trail, the Laugavega Trail in uh, Iceland 
and this picture of these multicolored mountains, <laughs> keeping it open on the table or or on the bed or. Uh, anyway, a few weeks later, he said, uh, I'd really like to go to Iceland. <laughs> well, surprise, surprise. <laughs> so we did. And we took an off-road bus for about four hours that took us into the southern highlands of Iceland mm -hmm. and dropped us off at the head of a lava flow <laughs> in this place that's a name on a map, but it's really just a shed with a few tents around it. Yeah. And, um, and that was it. That was the start of another hike through this incredible wilderness of of lava flows and and glacial valleys and and ash fields of of sooty ash and a landscape like it's almost hard to describe because yeah. it's so primeval. It's almost like walking through walking through evolution in a way it was Absolutely. remarkable remarkable place it's just incredible the way that you describe it we have someone who's got their hand raised so i'm going to allow them to ask a question uh jan i'm going to allow you to talk so um you're it should kind of allow you to to say something if you want if you unmute yourself if you don't then you can just type in the question and i can i can answer it um i can answer it for you we'll just see if jan wants to answer it live but can't hear anything from Jan. So if you try and if you Jan, if you type it into the questions, then I can uh, ask it. Um, so homelessness was obviously something that you kind of got stigmatized for uh, on the um, on while you were doing the salt path. But when you came, when it came to Iceland, it was almost like it was ageism a little bit that was the barrier between you and other people. Well, absolutely. Um, even even in the salt path, we'd encountered that attitude towards older people backpacking um which had come as a bit of a surprise then but it was so pronounced when we were in iceland um i think maybe we realized as we were walking along because it's actually regarded as being one of the, the tougher trails that you could go and walk on um we hadn't realized that before we got there <laughs> um <laughs> yeah uh, and there were lots and lots of young people sort of under 25s walking walking that trail um as as maybe a part of a gap year you know journey mm -hmm. and uh, yeah definitely a, a sense of ageism just occasionally occasionally we met up with uh, um an attitude of what are you doing here yes how, how can you be here yes. <laughs> you certainly can't go any further like you, there was lots of kind of people like you shouldn't be doing this exactly people like you that we had one particularly funny day just before just before we set off on the walk we'd be we'd been at that place we were dropped off at by the bus for a couple of days because it was raining so hard but there was this incredibly hot river so we were like just sitting in the bather in the river in our bathers as it was tipping it down with rain because it was just the warmest place to be and uh, we'd we'd just stayed there for a couple of days before we we set off and um we met uh, we met these young men who'd been walking partway down the trail and then given up and come back and um it, it was the same day as Moth had bought a tin of beans from um, from uh, this old bus that yeah. served as like a little shop. Mm -hmm. And he, we, we were all struggling to convert the currency and he bought this tin of beans for five pounds. So we were all just sort of joking about that. And, um, and these young boys said, you know, well, you won't be able to walk that far. How can, how can you walk that far? It's not safe. 
And I watched Moth as he put this tin of beans down on the table and pushed them away and just sat up in his chair. And I thought, that's it, we're setting off tomorrow. Undoubtedly, <laughs> we'll be setting off tomorrow. <laughs> and that, yeah, there was definitely something in the way that tin of beans went down on the table that, that mm. said, without a doubt, you tell me I can't I'm definitely going to what um, advice would you have for anyone who is what really wants to do something but thinks that they're just too old to do it ignore everyone else you do what you think you can do don't take the <laughs> stairs lightly run up them yes I would uh, without a doubt I would say you know run up them two at a time <laughs> Uh, we do have still lots of questions coming through. Uh, hi Raina, lovely to see you. Just wondering if your children visited you on the path, how did they cope with it all? They didn't because it was quite tricky for them because obviously they'd lost their home too and they were both just coming to the end of their time at university and rather than come home and do what people do after uni, they had to just immediately find work and find accommodation. So it was really difficult for them and they were going through the process of trying to find a way forwards in life for themselves. Um, but strangely, they've turned into quite balanced human beings and, um, and we've, we've become a lot closer, I think, because of the experience we all went through, really. Amazing. Um, someone said that Meryl Streep uh, should uh, play you if there's ever a film because you're a dead ringer for each other. Uh, <laughs> what a compliment. <laughs> you are, really. You look just like her. Uh, oh, okay. yeah, Maybe it should be a musical. Maybe, Maybe. Well, there you go. Maybe. Dance along the headlands. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be brilliant. Think of all the yeah. different musical uh, things. We could have the wild silence. Here we go the producer. <laughs> Absolutely. They've got time to write some music now, anyway. Oh. Absolutely, plenty of time. <laughs> um, I love the salt path. Looking forward to your new one. Do you know if the original bankruptcy former friend read the book? I've no idea. We haven't been in touch, but it would be lovely to uh, meet over a cup of tea and uh, discuss the way life's turned out. But who knows? <laughs> um, how? Oh, we've got two other people asking how the children reacted. Uh, you're clearly incredibly tough, capable people. Had you done a lot of walking, walked long distance paths before? And I can tell that person they can get their answer from the wild silence. But could you give a little bit of background on your past walking? Yes, lots about that in the wild silence. Some, some stories from our early days together and some walks that we did do then. Um, yeah, I think um, I think we did we did quite a lot when we were young before the children were born. Um, we did do a bit of backpacking, but mainly just in Scotland or the Lake District, and 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 we did walk in the hills quite a lot in our very early twenties. But then we had two little children, um, two babies within eighteen months, and yeah. um, and that sort of limits the amount of backpacking you can do. Then. And uh, for the first time, I put a rucksack on again after those years was when we started the salt path so it had been a very long time in between <laughs> so yeah absolutely um here's jan's finally come through with um their question dear Raina, i read the salt path and i'm currently two-thirds through the wild silence and it's so wonderful listening to you today thank you so much all the best jan thank you very very oh, much uh jan we've got a lot of people asking who they think we should be. we've got a lot of suggestions as to who should be <laughs> Uh, but Meryl Street seems to be the favourite. Uh, do you feel that nature was a redemptive power of some kind, a transformative power, or do you think it comes from within? 
I think all of those things, actually. Mm -hmm. I think for me, it comes from within because I'd grown up on a farm. It was, it was part of who I was. Um, and then I met Moth, who, although he'd grown up on the edge of a town, he had a really broader view of the natural world. Mm -hmm. he, he had a real passion for the mountains and the wild places. So together, that's what really formed such a strong bond between us in those early days was at the time that we spent in the natural environment. Um, but then we were on that salt coast path and um, we'd lost everything, every, every, just about every material thing that we had. And I thought that I'd lost some of who I was with that. Yes. But as we were walking, I think I came to realise that actually I could still have have access to the natural world. I still had that strong connection to the natural world. And through that, I still had a strong connection to the core of who I was. And that was something that I couldn't lose. And, and I think in so many ways that it was that that saved us, really. And I try to explore that a lot in the wild silence. I explore that connection by going back into our early years together, back into some of those early times when Moth and I had just met, and then on into things like our walk through Iceland. It's really an expo exploration of not just our connection to the natural world, but everyone's. Mm -hmm. And whether we are all part of the natural world, whether we recognise that or not. Would you say kind of that the whole thing i mean it it's almost a love story in the way it plays out because it's you know your relationship you and moth is just kind of one of the most amazing things about about the whole book and it really is so well explored in the world science where you came from what you know would you say it's a love story would you kind of say it's that type of book um i think in in one way it is because because uh, I do try to explore that, that natural connection through our, our time together. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, yeah, it's a love story, but there's nothing wrong with that, is there? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Um, and something that's quite striking when it comes to the world silence is when you get to Iceland, it feels like you're talking a lot more about climate change. And it seems like it must be a lot more apparent in Iceland. I suppose it must have been apparent on the salt path as well. But I suppose because Iceland's higher up and it's a bit more of a dramatic scene anyway, you know, it seems to be more obvious. How has this changed the way you look at climate change and, you know, its importance? Um, I think actually the whole of, of the wild silence, mm -hmm. it's about the natural world. Mm -hmm. Although it's told through through Moth and I's story, it's told through through lots of other things. But it's about the natural world. It's about the human connection to the natural world and how how we are shaped by that, whether we recognise it or we don't. And I I, um, I included our, our walk through Iceland at the end of the Wild Silence because it was as if that walk summed up everything else that I've been trying to say. It, it, when I say it was like a walk through evolution, it really was. It was. It was like um, it was like we were starting out in the, the lava and the volcanoes and the soot, and then we were as we were walking along, there were there were patches where the soot was was changing into into like a a, a medium where plants could grow. Yep. And then we were walking through sparse vegetation and then into birch birch woodlands and, and into river valleys and it, it was as if we were walking through 
all phases of early stage evolution. Like evolution, yeah, absolutely. It really was. And as if you could see that the, the land, it was as if it was at its beginning and it was reinventing itself over and over through, through the volcanic activity that's there. Mm-hmm. And I think what I was trying to, to portray there was that sense that the earth doesn't need us. No. It really will survive in some form or another without us. But as far as the, the natural world and the biodiversity issues that we have at the moment, coming back to us being here on the farm, just simply by reducing the amount of, of heavy human input on the farm, that real wasteland as far as wildlife was concerned that this place was when we came has now started to see clouds of insects returning skies full of gatekeeper butterflies and with that so many different birds and and wildlife that wasn't here just two years ago absolutely and and just by simply stepping back nature is allowing its nature is recovering it's it's allowing nature to to recover and in a way I was sort of paralleling that back again to to Moth's health because um, by putting him more into his natural state back out in the, in the environment physically active his health started to improve in ways that he'd been told were impossible and I, I was trying to show that actually there is quite a quite a, a mirroring of something there and maybe something for us all to learn absolutely if, if we if we allow ourselves to really look and accept that we are part of the natural world, not observers of it, not people who who view it from the outside or through a screen, but we're all, we're organic beings. So it's there's no escaping the fact that we are part of whatever's happening to the climate. I think that message is so true, and not just that you know that you're right. The earth doesn't need us, but we clearly do need it. Um, need the it. way that your book fundamentally express how important that connection is is yeah. you know is just uh, incredible. Um, what would you kind of recommend to people who you know feel like they want to get back out into nature but don't really know how to do that? I think I think you've got to start at the very simplest, most basic levels of just opening a window and yeah. and looking at the sky. And, and we've learned so much through lockdown, haven't we? You know, so many people, even in, the, in, even in the cities, have been able to open the window and hear the birds sing. Yes. And, and in ways that we couldn't before. Or, or we've taught our children how to grow tomatoes on the windowsill. Yes. And, and all those simple things that we've found through these last months that so many of us have never even considered in life before. That, that's a start, isn't it? Absolutely. Walking the park you know watch the daisies grow it's the simple things because we're part of that we're part of of the seasons and the cycles as much as as much as the birds in the hedgerow absolutely um we've got a couple more messages for you everyone just is dying to tell you how much they love your book uh all of your books hello Raina. i haven't read your book but have just been uh to north devon and saw the past last weekend and that just drew me to this webinar. I think the fact that you wrote the book to keep the memory of the walk alive, your husband is wonderful and really touched me. Your relationship with the nature is inspiring. I will definitely read your books. Thank you for your time this evening. Um, I think that the point you're making about the connection with the natural world is so vital. And I 
find that if that everyone was aware of this, we would probably not be facing the current climate emergency. Would you be happy to talk about this natural connection as you feel it uh, to a local uh, community assembly? It is so powerful, encouraging, and I hope that this natural connection uh, will grow. So there's an email address there. Um, so I can email that to you afterwards and you can get in touch with Jan about that. Jan, thank you so much. Um, hi, Raina, congratulations on the success of your books. You mentioned an early desire to write in the wild silence. The writing process seems to come easily. Did you ever struggle to find the next sentence? And I have to say, you write so beautifully. I, I almost wanted to ask, was this something that you had trained for earlier on in life? No, it's strange. Um, when I was a child, I mean, a child, I really had this dream that I was going to be a writer, you yeah. know, and I was going to grow up and I was going to have a penguin on the spine of my book, mm -hmm. my childhood <laughs> fantasy. But then, I, you know, as I, and there it is. Yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> but I, I grew up and I didn't write. Uh, mm -hmm. Life took me in another direction and, and that was that. So absolutely no training in anything writing based mm -hmm. whatsoever um so when i sat down to write um the salt path it was it was really a blank page and i had no idea if i could do it or not um and i wrote it i wrote my first draft of it and then i left it for a few weeks mm -hmm. because I, I almost didn't dare look at it again because i thought that's going to be rubbish and i knew i was giving it to moth and i knew i wanted it to be everything i dreamt it would be for him and it had to be perfect for him for that so when i picked it up again there were so many flaws in it mm -hmm. so many points where if i was reading somebody else's book i'd think that's rubbish or, or points where i tried to describe something but it just didn't it didn't do it mm -hmm. it didn't it didn't make me feel it or smell it or or sense it and I rewrote those bits. I completely stripped them out and I rewrote them again and again until I thought Moth sitting down reading that will feel as if he's there with me because that's all I was trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, that's, that's what it was. It was a, and that's the process I went through. And, um, and, and it's just such, and, and the end result is just incredible because we all feel like we're there whenever we kind of open the page. Um, so we're nearly coming to the end, but I suppose my last question would be, what would you say to someone who's just had a massive, you know, loss or they've gone through something that's just upheaved, you know, kind of changed their entire life? What would you say to them? I think I think those moments in life that it's hard to think of anything. Those moments when, when you feel as if you're standing in the rubble of your life, you, you it's hard to think beyond that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's later, later when the dust starts to settle. I think you can either you you can make a choice really. You can choose to be defined by that dust and allow your life to be choked by it, or you can actually make a choice to let life take you forwards mm -hmm. to shake the dust off and allow yourself to go forwards with hope and see life as full of the possibilities that it is and i still try to keep doing that every day really and i, th I think that's the that's all i would say because i think that's 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 the choice that we all have to make oh my goodness well uh, Raina, you've just been so unbelievably inspirational. Your books are incredible. For anyone who's watching this who hasn't read them, um, you absolutely must because they will change your life. 
they'll kind of make you want to walk 630 miles, but don't worry, it's a, it's a journey that I think everyone maybe should undertake at some point. Raina, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and thank you for everyone who's watching and for putting in so many uh, great questions. Is there going to be a third book? Can we ask that? There is, actually, there is. Um, yeah, but you'll need your walking boots ready for this one. <laughs> A challenge. I like the sound of that. Raina, thank you so much. Thank you for everyone watching at home uh, and have a lovely evening, everybody. Thank you so much, Raina. Thank you and thank you, everybody. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.
You were looking for trouble and you found it. We are a special society, a talks and dinners club where you can hear some of the finest voices talking on everything from politics to fiction. They all happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode.